Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. Today we have Court Rudolph on the podcast, and we're going to be talking about generations and generational differences. Or the lack thereof. This is going to be a great, great podcast. And, you know, we're going to talk about what generations are, if they even exist. We're going to talk about whether or not they matter. We're going to talk about some myths about generations and generational differences. And, of course, some implications for people, leaders, and organizations. So before I introduce him, just so you know, we actually have him on the podcast. Say hi, Court. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me. Awesome. This is our pleasure. So Court Rudolph is an associate professor of industrial and organizational psychology at St. Louis University. He received a BA from DePaul University and his master's and PhD from Wayne State University. Court's research focuses on a variety of issues related to the aging workforce, including applications of lifespan development theories, well-being and work longevity, and ageism generationalism. He is an associate editor of the Journal of Vocational Behavior and serves on the editorial review boards of the Journal of Managerial Psychology and the Journal of Occupational and Organizational Psychology. And today's conversation really came about because he's got a paper that's that's in press right now at the Journal of Business and Psychology. I came across it and I said, wow, we've got to talk to Court about this. So he's the lead author of an article that's titled Generations and Generational Differences, Debunking Myths in Organizational Science and Practice and Paving New Paths Forward. So with that being said, that's the focus of today's conversation. So I guess uh, let's just start off with uh, your initial thoughts about, um, you know, what motivated you to write this article? Uh, Tell us a little bit about your research and some of your thoughts around generations. Yeah, so um, I started studying generations, I don't know, probably about seven years ago, I would say, seven or eight years ago, um, mostly stemming from work that I was doing regarding uh, aging at work and uh, features of the kind of older worker workforce. And uh, there was a couple of things here. I mean, first of all, I I would get these reviewer comments on papers regarding age and work. And the comments would say something like, yeah, this is great, but couldn't these differences or couldn't these effects or couldn't these relationships that you're finding with age be due to generational differences? (laughs) (laughs) And And so, uh, I mean, the short answer is maybe, I don't know, let's go figure that out. And so I started digging into that literature a little bit and, uh, you know, reading a lot of the early work that was done in sociology on this and then sort of digging through, uh, you know, what, what empirical work we can find in our field in, you know, in psychology and OB and management um, about, about generations and generational differences and kind of figured out really quickly that the answer to reviewer two is pretty strongly no, uh, (laughs) that these age effects are probably not generational. And in fact, anything that we probably think is a generational effect could be better explained either by an age effect or by some interaction between people and the time and place that they're living and, uh, current kind of contextual contemporaneous factors. Um, and when you kind of figure out what's going on in this literature, what you figure out pretty quickly is that 
uh, there's a lot of limitations with the ability to study generations, so much so that I, I've made this statement before and I'm happy to stand by it. I don't think we've ever actually done a study of generational differences because I'm not even sure it's possible to study these things. <laughs> and, and the and reason yet, I'm <laughs> laughing is because I know the rest of this story. Yeah. This generational stuff that pervades pop psychology, media, LinkedIn, your dinner room conversations, all of it is crap. It's garbage, guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the technical way to put it. Yeah, since yeah. here on the Indigo podcast, we focus on evidence-based interventions yeah. for individuals and organizations. We just, there was yeah. no way that we couldn't kidnap Court for an hour <laughs> or so and get him on here to talk about it, right? So yeah. let, let's let's do a deeper dive. So like, what it, what is a, generational or what is a generation anyway yeah so there's a few different ways that we can think about this and i think the most kind of classical sociological perspective on this is that generations are this sort of unit of like social importance and and so sociologists talk about generations as like uh these sort of groupings of birth cohorts that uh have gone through these sort of formative life experiences early on um in their youth and so a classic example from so the sociological literature is the experience of the Great Depression. So there's these sort of broad studies of, 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 of children who grew up during the Great Depression and looking at kind of the effects of that experience, the sort of formative early uh, experience uh, on later life outcomes. And so generations in a sociological sense are this sort of unit of study for understanding social change. And the basic principle from the sociological literature is, is stemming from this early uh, uh, sort of thought experiment that was put out by a, a researcher from uh, sociology named Karl Mannheim. And, and Mannheim says something like, would it be possible for societies to change if there weren't new generations to bring new ideas to bear on culture? And so the idea behind uh, generations really comes from this sort of uh, this this perspective of can we understand culture change from the way in which uh, new members of society bring new ideas to bear on that culture. So somewhere in the mix of all of this, these ideas get co-opted, and so in in like translating these ideas into business and management and marketing there becomes this process of labeling different generations and ascribing qualities to these generations so that we can differentiate them, so that we can segment markets, so that we can uh, say that there are, you know, uh, differences between members of one generation versus another in terms of values or attitudes or, or behaviors, you know, yeah, you say the first word that comes to mind, millennial, avocado toast. Yeah, avocado toast. <laughs> you know, they're... It's not millennial. They're 40 years old, retiring from the military, 20 yeah. years of service and over a decade of war. Yeah, oh, exactly. No, that one doesn't come to mind at all. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So they become, yeah. These, they become these really convenient wrappers that we can put around this really complicated thing, which is everybody gets older and everybody experiences age-related change. And uh, everybody has this fundamental motivation to understand other people's behavior. And when we have these sort of universals, we need to simplify some of the complexity there. And so generations are really a convenient way of doing that. We get these sort of labels and 
prototypes of what a member of one generation versus another generation looks like or does or thinks or you know you know values and then we can we can draw lines between them which helps simplify otherwise really complicated things like this really messy process of development which is different for everyone or the changing nature of society which is experienced different by everyone as well. And so if we kind of intersect those two things, aging and culture change, then we get this idea of generations and 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 it just it becomes uh it becomes sort of this universal thing that people kind of accept as being truth, you know. Generations yeah. exist, so we might as well talk about them, right? Right. So it's kind of a cognitive shortcut that we use yeah. to try to think about the world and our place in it and who we are even and, uh, you know, this has really been a pervasive thing. You know, we were talking when we were prepping for this episode. Um, so, you know, Court and I both went to graduate school around the same time period. And, you know, I was thinking back to, um, you know, early on in that experience, you know, 2007, 2008, there was really starting to be this burgeoning, at least in the popular side of things and the popular press um, about, you know, managing millennials and, and things like that. It, it always struck me as odd. It was like there's this different species or something. Yeah. And, uh, but it's been pervasive. Um, you know, th there's, there are lots of people who, uh, you know, have built entire consulting practices and sold books around this whole idea. And it's just fascinating to me that this is persistent. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I, I use this analogy always that you, know, you can like walk through an airport bookstore and 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 look at the shelves and and some you know three or four of these books at least are going to be about features of managing generations in some capacity and like you know that's like that's like to me the sort of prototype of what what is popular business press it's like you got you're walking through the airport you're getting a bottle of water and you're getting a book about managing millennials i feel like <laughs> you know that's where that's where this sort of stuff comes out so yeah no I, and the funny thing too about this like emergence of this idea that oh we need to we need to manage millennials is that you can trace that back and so there's there's books from the 80s about managing members of generation x and you can find references going back to the 50s about managing members of this sort of like emerging boomer uh generation as well um, not not nearly as formalized and not nearly as much of an industry around it as well. But yeah, you can go online and you can hire yourself a generations consultant to come into your organization and tell you how to how to how to do this, that, and the other thing to to manage members of different generations and and also to manage the differences between them, which I guess is sort of the other issue too. Yeah, Ben, yeah. that's that's our moneymaker. Managing numbskulls, a complete guide. We'll make a million dollars. But, you know, I used to think when this stuff first came out and they're like, well, and, and this is a pervasive idea. If I can learn if this is like the worst clickbait on the Internet, you know, cure your foot fungus with Windex and this one easy trick. <laughs> right. I mean, this is like the managerial version of that, which is garbage because underlying it, in my view, is this idea that. If I can just say the magic words, I can get people to be a cog in the wheel. I can yeah. get them to be automatons in my organization. And that's bull. That is just such baloney. It's ridiculous. So wait a minute. You, you, your company can't retain its talent. It, it must be them. If I knew the magic words. So yeah, like, where's that introspection of my company's garbage? Or, hey, man, these guys may be grabbed capitalism a little bit more fiercely, developed a skill set that they're able to print cash with elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And like some of this stuff that we've seen, it's like, hey, listen, we don't want to be able to keep them forever. 
we actually don't have that big of an organization. But if we could just retain them for two years, because we need somebody to do this numbskull work. And there's all this other stuff that goes into it. But the shortcut is blaming a generation. Mm-hmm. And and it, that's just stinking thinking. It's shortcutted. <laughs> and it, it's bad. Yeah. And I'll just quote, uh, you know, Quartz writing back to him here, because I love this piece from the beginning part of his article in which he says, and I quote, Indeed, a recent consensus study published by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine concluded that, and this is quoting again from that, categorizing workers with generational labels like baby boomer or millennial to define their needs and behaviors is not supported by research and cannot adequately inform workforce management decisions, end quote. Uh, I think that's a really key thing for us to 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 be thinking about here in terms of uh, you know, why are we treating people differently based upon some generational? I'm using the little quote thing here, right? Uh, differences. It's just uh, it's a pervasive myth that that really needs to be uh, exterminated, in my view. Absolutely. Now, I think yeah. there's some cohort approaches, like people that graduated during the last economic downturn. Like they, they've shown like lifetime earnings can be based yeah. on when you happened in history. Like if you were born during the Black Plague, you had an X percent chance of dying. OK, that's fine. That's a cohort and t- place and time effect. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about some lenses by which we can view generations. Right. Mm-hmm. Sure. So like one of them is the social construction. What what is that? Yeah, so this uh, this idea of the social construction perspective, the social constructionist perspective on uh, on generations, really stems from this idea that we need a way to rectify the fact that, as you just said, the evidence base for this is really not existent. Um, but everyone loves this idea, right? So how do we how do we rationalize the fact that generations exist in people's minds, <laughs> but that they don't actually manifest and affect work behavior or or values or whatever? And so the social constructionist perspective tries to put some some sort of a framework around understanding uh, what the value of generations is to people. And so the first thing that it recognizes is that we made these things up. And yeah. so by recognizing that so we, made the, we made these things up because we needed to simplify a really complicated issue. And so the first tenet here is basically generations are social constructions. We made them up through various mechanisms, this is supported by media, this is supported by, you know, sort of basic fundamental psychological processes related to stereotyping and, and, and prejudice, prejudice, you know, prejudice and discrimination. Um, so, so if we acknowledge that generations don't really exist, then we start to ask different questions about them. And the questions we need to ask from a constructionist lens are, why do people like these things? Why do they apply them? And what is the consequence of applying them? And so we can start to ask questions about what supports this continued focus on generations. Um, how how do people learn about generations? So, you know, what are the sources of information that lead people to to form these these sort of you know broader pictures of what members of one generation versus another you know look like? Um, so that's one perspective. So social constructionist perspective basically is is you know hey, given that we know that that generations don't hold that much water as a kind of a unit of study. You know, what do we do with this this pervasiveness of generations and how do we make sense of it? And so um, the, the other 
kind of piece of this is that, you know, recognizing the social constructivist, social constructivist kind of perspective on generations gets us to a place where we can start to ask questions about, you know, why people use generations as, as, as kind of a sense-making tool and why people, you know, turn to generations as a way of making sense of really complicated features of social environments. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, so, I mean, there's all different related variables sort of in, in, in kind of intertwined within this perspective. One common one to look at is sort of generational identity and like sort of the strength with which people kind of identify with one generation versus another. So this isn't saying that a generation objectively exists, but basically you can ask people, hey, do you believe that you're a member of this generation? And what are the implications of that belief system? Yeah. yeah. Now, so I've now, got my friend who says I'm an elder millennial. Yeah. So she wants to be hip to the technology, but not dumb as those numbskulls. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, the reason the reason we started pushing for this is is kind of interesting. So you asked the question before about like why you know why did I start doing this work? And it comes from teaching actually. So I, I teach you know undergraduate personnel psychology, um, and I, I have students give presentations about different features of you know personnel systems, and and one one in particular that students usually talk about is different recruitment methods uh, that organizations can use to attract you know, new members. And uh, more than once I had students that would get up and give a presentation and they would say something like, you know, as a member of this generation, I want this, 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 and this from an employer. And the first time I heard it, it didn't, you know, I was like, you know, what are you talking about? And then the second time I heard it, I was like, that's the same thing I heard before. And the third time I was like, well, there's a pattern here. And so the question is, where do people get these ideas from? And so I just you know, started asking people, like, why do you think that as a millennial, you're you're seeking flexibility? <laughs> and the answer invariably invariably was, well, I've been told that millennials want flexibility. And it's like, wait a second. So you're constructing this own picture of your own identity as this member of a generation. And that's changing the way that you're seeking out information about organizations that you want to join. And then it just becomes this sort of weird cycle of reinforcing these ideas from, you know, this is what the organization thinks people want. This is the yeah. message that we're using to recruit people. Holy crap, I'm a millennial. I might as well join that organization that, that favors flexibility. Oh, but by the way, nearly everybody wants flexibility, right? And so <laughs> yeah. it doesn't... <laughs> and everybody wants these sort of core features of, of jobs, uh, autonomy and flexibility and feedback for performance and to feel like their work is meaningful. And it has nothing to do with generations at all. It's just that like some HR recruiter figured out something once about job design and then translated that into a generational difference. And everybody thinks that millennials, you know, want all this stuff or members of another generation don't or whatever. And then they tailor their practices to that. And it's not, there's no basis in actual reality. Well, I, wait a minute. I just Googled what millennials want from work. And the first thing that shows up in the result, what millennials want from work, colon, seven research back truths. Research back, yeah. <laughs> mm. yeah, I, yeah, maybe they're sitting on a pile of old journals while they just, you know, yeah. puke out this stuff. But a culture fit aligned personal and organizational values, no. timely and regular recognition. Ability to learn and rise to the ranks. Who doesn't want that? Do you, yeah. oh, you know, I woke up today, I turned 50, guys, and all of a sudden, I don't care about recognition at work or yeah. the ability to get promoted. 
Oh yeah, that's and that's <laughs> No, I mean that's the other really fascinating thing about this is that people people see this as like a, a staged process, right? Or like I mean that's that's sort of implying that there's like these jumps in age differences, right? But also people make these like really they kind of put up these walls between generations and they don't recognize that like you know, in psychology, we talk a lot about variability between and within groups, right? We're really right. interested in like the distribution of individual differences. Like I have no doubt that there is somebody there who doesn't want that much autonomy in their job. Like there are some days, honestly, where I wish someone would just tell me what to work on because I'm sitting there, you know, whatever. But that that's an individual difference that's going to vary across generations. And there's going to be more variability in preferences for work features uh, you know, within and between generations that aren't accounted for when we just say, millennials want this, boomers want, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Pretty quickly falls apart. Yeah. So another lens that you've mentioned in your paper and that we've talked about when we were prepping for this episode through which we can view this idea of generations is the lifespan development type of view. Yeah. What's, what's that about? Yeah. So um, the lifespan development view comes from kind of core theories in developmental psychology. And so one of the things that I do in my work is to try to bring these theories over from, uh, from developmental psychology so that we can come to a better understanding of the role of age and aging in the workplace. And so the lifespan development view takes a pretty different take on the role of age in the workplace than the generation's view would have us believe. So the, the lifespan view is based on this idea that development occurs as a lifelong process. And so we get rid of all these ideas of kind of stages of development. And we, we instead talk about intra-individual variability and kind of factors that predict changes and trajectories of development over time. Um, so core to this idea is, is this idea that um, we, we really need to consider individual differences in development rather than thinking about groups of people as cohorts. And so the generations model tends to focus on grouping people into these broad cohort groups, and then we label them and then we treat them differently, right? And so the generations model uh, doesn't really fit with what, what developmental psychology would say about the role of age and age-related change over time. Um, we recognize in this model that there's a lot of variability that needs to be accounted for within the developmental course, but we also look at things like factors that modify development. And so, for example, there's a recognition that contemporaneous events, like, like you were suggesting before, growing up uh, or, or coming of age during a recession and entering the job market during a recession, that might have a profound impact on individuals. It likely does, right? But that's not going to manifest as a generational difference. That's more of this sort of idiosyncratic developmental sort of shock that would change the course of development for some, but, but, but perhaps not everybody. Yeah. If your mommy bought your way into Harvard and you're yeah. now rotting in jail, you may be on a different, cooler trajectory <laughs> than people that had to earn their own way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And that's and that's really the problem with generations is that it's really top down, right? It's like something happened, it affected everybody in the member every member of this cohort and then it's just sort of it's this sort of heterogeneous process that's that's sort of followed them through life. It's like this the shadow of uh being a member of a of a specific cohort. And so this has been called various things. It's been called cohort determinism. 
it's been called the generation's trap. So falling mm. into this idea that like, you know, just because everybody went through the, you know, the last recession doesn't mean that everybody came out of that worse or better or whatever. Uh, people find their own way through those types of contemporaneous, you know, exogenous shocks, so to say. And so the generation's perspective gives, gets us to a place where we can talk about aging and work and we can talk about actionable things we can do to manage an aging workforce that doesn't require us to label people on the basis of generations, assume these sort of homogenous processes that flow from thinking about generations. It gets us to a place where we can talk about age directly and not indirectly by categorizing people into younger versus older generations groups. Uh, it opens up the doors to a whole bunch of other research questions. But again, I mean, it has a lot of practical value in that we can actually translate the suggestions from uh, lifespan perspectives into, hey, what should we do to manage an older, an older and aging workforce? Or what should we do to manage workers across the entirety of the work lifespan rather than thinking about, uh, we got to focus on just the millennials because of, you know, whatever assumptions we're going to make about what they want or because somebody in hr bought one of those horrible books at the airport yeah that's were... why we're going to focus on generation <laughs> they were well, they, yeah. it, 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 you know it just strikes me as so odd and it always has the the labeling that happens with mm -hmm. regard to generations because you know we, we we recognize that that's not a great way to think about other groups in society, yeah. right? Even even it, let's let's even say okay, generations exist. Let's let's put that out there, even though that's dubious at best. Yeah, right. Um, even if they do exist, putting broad labels on such a gigantic group of people is is doesn't work very well, right? Yeah. We don't. We yeah. Let's we use the D word: discrimination. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it doesn't bias. work so well with uh, you know, when we refer to different races and ethnic groups, it doesn't work really great when we talk about different genders. So let's maybe not do that with generations, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, the funny thing is, right, so aging is a universal experience for most people who are lucky, right? Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully, we're all going to get Snap. old. It took me a minute. <laughs> I'm, I'm slow, but I'm worth waiting on. <laughs> so, Say that again. So, I mean, hopefully, we're all going to get old, right? Everybody. Yeah. Some aren't. But truthfully, that's one of the few universal experiences is the process of aging. And so we don't, you know, not everybody is a member of one race versus another, or not everybody identifies with a, a specific gender versus another. And so we can we can make differences between those relatively easily. And it's a pretty socially unacceptable thing to do, mm -hmm. right? But age, open season. Yep. Let's go for it. I mean, it, you know, and then... We can say, well, you know, that's ageist. We can say, like, well, you know, classifying older people as whatever litany of stereotypes you want to, that's ageist. But but let's actually, let's do something a little bit different. Let's couch this in terms of generations. Now we're removing the age component. We're talking about generations, which doesn't classify individuals. It's classifying groups that are socially agreed upon. And so then we can say, well, millennials do this and boomers do this. And really what we're saying is that older people do this and younger people do this. And so it's really, it's really thinly veiled ageism. I mean, it's, it's almost like this sort of modern form of ageism where we can justify being ageist on the basis of saying, no, 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 I'm not ageist. This has to do with generations. <laughs> yeah. some, some, some old people are hip to Instagram 
and can check their email. Yeah, yeah, sure. Right. <laughs> Some old people don't forward you, Dad, if you're listening to this, don't forward <laughs> you every piece of garbage that they get into their inbox. Right. <laughs> but you, but you see how easy it is to yeah. just immediately. This is basically socially sanctioned discrimination. Mm -hmm. And it's not just in these pop books. It's no. like it's an HBR, Harvard Business Review, which a lot of people look at. It's like, well, I mean, hey, this is a big institution. They got a lot of, you know, one of the elite business schools. They've got top, they can have any professor they want for <laughs> the most part. Um, HBR's had some articles that have missed it, right? Yeah. So HBR has had a few articles about this and you see these pop up and then they also, but to be fair, I mean, they've also had a few articles where they go, well, wait a second, guys, hold on. But then that's super confusing too, because you got two papers in front of you and one says something exists and one says something doesn't exist. And which one are you going to go with? Are you going to go with the one that society says exists? Or are you going to go with this sort of, wait a second, hold on a second. Let's think about this. Whatever idea justifies a little bit more my view at the time. Whatever justifies, That's what I go with. Whatever justifies <laughs> the money I've already spent on a consultant to tell me that they exist or whatever, right? <laughs> <laughs> we already have a budget for this program. So, oops, it must, it must be important, right? Yeah. But this is, <laughs> right. this is so important because we're talking from the top founts of where working practitioners and business people go to get their yeah. information and that there's baloney being put out and that we're dealing writ large as a society with all kinds of, well, how do we define bias? How do we maybe uproot it and change it for the better? Mm -hmm. um, hey, discrimination is bogey. Like maybe you don't mind discriminating against older people until you need a job in your 70s, yeah, right? Sure. You know, all these things, like I think like at a 30,000 foot level, we can say, hey, this is garbage. But then we get down to the like level where it's got to execute. All of a sudden, all this stuff flies apart and we are executing the same garbage. So, you know, Harvard knows about bias and all this stuff. Yet here it's so insidious. It's like eggs in a cake, right? If somebody has an egg allergy, you can say, <laughs> yeah. hey, man, I'm eating this cake. I can't taste the eggs in there. Yeah. But there's eggs baked all in it, and it's just ubiquitous. You can't. We baked a cake of bias and discrimination that it's going to take smart people like Court to help us. Help Court, <laughs> get us out of here, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, and that's the truth. I mean, it's 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 very deeply ingrained. Um, you know, it's it's funny. Uh, I, I'm in a psychology department, uh, but uh, there is actually so here's how deeply ingrained it is. So. Uh, Across the street, literally from my building, is our business school. And uh, you can take a class there uh, on generational differences at work. So, like, you're they're teaching this across the street. Court, do you have tenure? You're not going to get fired from this. Oh, episode, no, I'm, are you? I, I'm, I'm tenured at school. He's okay, good. thank you. <laughs> All right. No, no I bring away business. No, I, I, <laughs> no, I bring this up every chance that I get. And so, but yeah, you can, if you do a little, a little Googling for this, there's this, this isn't the, we're not the only offenders. It's just the day that I Googled that, because I was trying to make the point, like, hey, d is this actually taught in business curricula? You know, like, is that, mm. and I Googled it and I was like, wait a second, there's, what's this first hit? And I was like, oh, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you guys, these are, these are my people here. What are you doing? So, yeah, it's interesting. Right. Yeah, it's like, yikes. we're building education policy around this. There's a lot of discussion right now in higher ed about, you know, do we need to, you know, modify how we, how we recruit 
undergrad students on the basis of generational things? Do we need to attend to to differences in in their you know their preferences for education? And probably yeah. probably not. I would I would think not based on the broader literature on this. But there's a lot of money being dumped into that right now for sure. Yeah, Absolutely. marketing the entire marketing, all the analytics you get from Google Analytics. Oh, yeah. If you develop a social media, like okay, we're looking at age, we're looking at sex, we're mm-hmm. like any data point is somehow meaningful, so I can sell you my solution and actually Mm -hmm. like here's the problem is people are looking for shortcutted thinking Mm -hmm. and the shortcutting thinking is getting us the bias and discrimination that we're seeing in racial issues that Mm -hmm. that are coming to the fore right now it's all across the board and we wonder well how could somebody be deceived by some of these like say racist thoughts well here's an example of our own bias that is just Mm -hmm. baked into our society structurally i.e entire lines of business study and work like marketing are yeah. built around it and and we're stuck here yeah well i mean like yeah the marketing stuff is really fast i just I, honestly at some level i think someone made the decision at one point that it's just really hard to explain what a standard deviation is to someone else and so if we don't if we just bucket people we don't have to explain that variability it's this 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 and this it's not you know this range and mm-hmm. so you know People like that. People like that simplification. And it, 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 on the surface, it's really benign. If you dig into it a little bit, you know, there is a lot of possibilities for this to, to kind of go south on folks. So um, you, you give this example of like, you know, uh, millennials are retiring. Yeah. So, I mean, like if you look at the cutoffs for these generational groups, and that's a whole messy thing in and of itself, the youngest members of the millennial cohort, so to say, uh, typically are, are that's that's like uh, or I guess I should say the oldest members. Excuse me. Um, they were born in like 1980, depending on who you read, right? And so it's 2020, so these folks are turning 40. So all these millennials who are disrupting work are actually tip, you know, they're technically considered to be older workers as defined by the Age Discrimination and Employment Act. <laughs> and so, so millennials are now older workers officially. Some at some point this year, they started to become older workers. And so, everybody who's turning forty this year, who was born in nineteen eighty, who's technically a millennial, if you believe, you know, like what Pew says, or one of these organizations that sanctions these labels. Yeah. Well, oh. I, I think that that actually brings us to uh, a great part of your paper where you talk about these different myths and you sure. have 10 of them in the paper. And uh, I thought maybe you know, we probably can't go through all 10, but I think we could just pick a couple and, and talk yeah, sure. a little bit about them. You know, th- the one that you just alluded to, so it's perfect segue here, is uh, what you label as myth number three, which is <laughs> that uh, generational labels and associated age ranges are agreed upon, that that mm-hmm. is a myth. So there's there seems to be a wide discrepancy in how we even define these generations. Yeah, absolutely. So one way to think about this is to consider how individual research papers define different generations. And so if you take papers by five research teams that are all purporting to study generational differences. There's a pretty good chance that each one of those papers is going to use slightly different age ranges to define labeled generations, millennials or boomers or whatever. And that's a big problem, right? Uh, That's a pretty big liability in science. If the way that I measure something is different than the way that you measure something, and we're going to draw similar conclusions on the basis of those differing measurements, then you might say, well, wait a second here. What are we actually holding constant as part of that? You know, we need to scale something. 
that's sort of a fundamental premise of psychological measurement. Well, if you're not holding that generational grouping constant, you're working with a moving target. So there's mm-hmm. there's there's very little consistency among these. Um, and I love to watch people talk about that because they're like, well, you know, you know, one, one organization says that these are the cutoffs and then another organization says that these are the cutoffs. And, uh, you know, sometimes they're based on. Yeah. Sometimes they're just like 10 year groupings sometimes. Yeah. So there's a there's a ton of, of variability in that. Um, but yeah, no, they're definitely not agreed upon uh, at one level. Who cares? You know, it's a heuristic that tells us something about people, about differences between, you know, sort of these fuzzy groupings of people on the basis of age. At another level, like we don't really know much about generations if we can't actually define what they are in terms of when they begin and end. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So which leads us to the thing of generations don't exist except in our minds, except in our. I mean, this is like a horoscope, guys, for businesses. Yeah. Oh, I don't believe in that baloney <laughs> horoscope stuff, you know, yeah. cancer, Leo, whatever. Mm-hmm. But I believe in these generational differences that mm-hmm. forecast who you're going to be as a worker through your life cycle. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Maybe, maybe there are generational differences in MBTI scores. Yeah. so i've actually seen i've actually seen papers on this and i can't yeah so i've seen papers where people do this right so (laughs) so they'll take they'll take generations and it gets it gets it gets studied in a variety of contexts but i think i actually have seen the generations mbti paper oh my gosh and Yeah. Gosh, that's horrible. We made up the worst thing we could think of. And lo and behold, Court, sure. it's like, it's true, guys. No. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I've said this before, but I mean, like in psychological research, you you get some leeway with, with how you're creative and, and the way that you set up your, your theories and your models, right? But like, honestly, you can only really make up one thing. And so, mm-hmm. you, you, you know, generations are made up. And whatever... <laughs> I mean, I love talking about the MBTI. That's a whole thing. Um, that's super made up, right? Like, and so, <laughs> so you can't make up both the predictor and the criterion in that model. I'm sorry. You, 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 you know, I know. What, yeah. So it, it's, it's but interesting. People defend it as, well, you can learn about yourself. And I'm like, well, you can sure. go to a peyote Indian sweat lodge too. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, this is interesting, right? So there's, there's like, these are management fads. And that's the other way we've talked about generational differences is that there is like management has this, this strong culture of, of ascribing to fads. And, you know, like it used to be MBTI and disc and, you know, uh, you know, kind of these sort of typology types assessments of personality, and those still exist. They're they're around too. Um, you know, for a while we were real into like you know leaders' emotional intelligence and like what that means and such, right? And mm-hmm. and then you know, so that, so generations are sort of like a subtext for this. But you yeah, there's there's all kind the, the, these all of these sort of pseudo scientific fatty elements of management, like. They they intersect at some level, so it's it's actually pretty interesting. Um, uh, I've done a little bit of work, kind of digging into the sort of like leadership development generation side of things, and there's just some really fascinating suggestions about, you know, how we should develop members of different generations using like uh, interventions that are based on having leaders ride horses, and so they call this like <laughs> they call this like equine based leadership development. And there's something about the interaction between you know, members of different generations and sort of like whatever, 
<laughs> whatever the experience of riding a horse does to you psychologically. And I'm not even joking. I mean, this is serious. This is like published research. <laughs> so yeah, there, like I said, I feel like you get to make up one side of the equation when you're doing psychological research, but you know, not both, not yeah. both. You can't, you yeah. can't, you well, can't rely on. That's yeah. right. Well, I think you kind of brought us to what you label in your paper as myth number six, which is, uh, that generations need no. to be managed at work, that this is a myth, uh, that leaders probably don't need to care about or be concerning themselves with managing people in terms of different generations, right? Yeah, exactly. So so there's kind of two levels to this, at least two levels to this. So on the one hand, yeah, the research suggests that these there's really, there's no generational differences to manage. So you're managing some <laughs> sort of phantom phenomenon or or worse, you're creating the phenomenon. Right. So I'm going to treat you differently because I assume you're a millennial. So millennials are panned, right? They're they're narcissistic and they're entitled. And and I think you're entitled. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I just got out of business school and I'm a new leader. Oh, that's probably not true. But whatever. You know, I, I, I've, I've been told that millennials are going to act narcissistically in a in, have narcissistic patterns of behavior and that they're going to act very entitled. Right. So, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to treat you that way. And then I'm going to be surprised when you act that way. Right. Mm. So if you treat people like they should be narcissistic and that they should be entitled, you shouldn't be surprised if you seek out those differences, you're going to find them. So it's kind of one of these like social psychological, uh, you know, principles of, uh, you know, of the way in which you, you interact with people affects their behavior. Uh, sort yeah. of this like Pygmalion effect kind of a thing. Right. Exactly. So, um, but yeah, no. There's no differences to manage. And so the implication is, is like, at one level, maybe it's pretty benign. Like, well, you're managing stuff that doesn't exist. So maybe you're just kind of wasting time. But at another level, if you start to treat people differently based on false assumptions that you make about them, that leads you to kind of a bad spot, you know? And so we are starting to see uh, uh, ADEA, Age Discrimination and Employment Act cases, uh, brought that have mention of these ideas. So, uh, you know, people are saying like, I was told that we are an organization that wants to hire millennials, but I'm a member of a different older generation. And so I was passed up for a promotion or something like this. And so these cases, these legal cases are being brought on the basis of age discrimination and employment act. But the way that that age discrimination is being communicated to, to the, to the, you know, people bringing these cases is, is, uh, you know, through a generation's lens. So you're not saying mm -hmm. I'm not hiring you because you're older. You're saying, well, we're trying to recruit millennials. And so that <laughs> sort of subtle subtext. So yeah, there's no, there's no generations to really manage here. Um, right. it's, it's yeah. a unnecessary liability in some respects. Sure. Well, and another myth that you mentioned is that members of younger generations are disrupting work, you know, yeah. that, uh, they're the ones out there that are, uh, you know, um, kind of shaking things up mm -hmm. or whatever, but that seems to not be the case necessarily. Yeah. So this has a couple of this. So all these myths have some basis in some reality, right? Mm -hmm. And so this kind of goes back to an idea that I discussed earlier, which was that the kind of early conceptualization of, of, of generations from a sociological perspective is you need new people to change culture. And so culture theory recognizes this as well, this as well. So organizational culture theory recognizes this as well. Like, you know, Shine talks about, you know, changing cultures to change cultures. You need to have new ideas and new ideas come with people. All right. Um, and so this idea that members of younger cohorts are changing work probably isn't 
wrong, but there's all of these sort of, you know, speculations that there's something unique about the way that this young generation is is changing work. And the funny thing is that you can trace that back in history. I mean, like, if you go back and read accounts of what youth does to institutions, there's mentions of young, you know, young new ideas, young people with new ideas changing social, social institutions over time. And so there's a remarkable kind of cyclical nature to this. Wait a second, things are changing. Who do we blame? We blame the new people. <laughs> yeah, but listen to that. So you're in an organization and like you look at the Fortune 500. Mm-hmm. They're not the same cohort year after year. Some of them die and go. And this is like the idea of the good idea fairy at scale. This is a whole generation of good idea fairies that are going to change how things are going on yeah. here. And it's like, wait a minute. What organization doesn't want good ideas? Yeah. You will die on the capital capitalist vine if you're not <laughs> evolving. Yeah. And it, and you're not going to get those new ideas continually from the same numbskulls you have right now. You have to refresh. Yeah. Like, I mean, who wants to go back to having, you know, buggies and buggy whips? Right. Who wants to go back to the Model T Ford? I'd love. I don't know how my parents raise kids without an iPad, because if we're at a nice dinner, sure. it's just like, here, watch this so I can have 10 minutes of eating with your mom, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, new ideas are awesome, yet there's this thing where like ah change like we also know that from the literature that change is challenging on us Mm -hmm. we can't continually stay in a growth cycle and maintain our humanity so the goal for organizations is to maintain this this tug of war is actually a positive thing not a negative thing yeah no i i completely agree and like these disruption this disruption idea is everywhere with generations it's it's not just within organizations i mean you can go on Google and type in millennials are killing dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Right. You know, and you can get this list that like every hit is like some way of life or product classification or industry that they're killing like baseball or processed cheese or high (laughs) heels or, you know, and so it's like this, this, this is, this is this disruption myth, which is that, (laughs) I just, I just Googled it. So I got a couple hits for you. I just sure. have to throw this out here. By the way, this is not one you mentioned, but millennials are killing mayonnaise. Yeah, mayonnaise. Millennials are killing the diamond industry. Millennials are killing change. The doorbell industry. Yeah, no more doorbells. <laughs> just tax. A bunch of... <laughs> oh, that's that's great. So I just had to interject that. Yeah. 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 So, you know, and I think this kind of brings us to the last myth that you talk about in the paper and I encourage all of our listeners to go check out the paper. We'll post a link to it in the show notes. Um, but this last myth is that talking about generations is largely benign. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it'd be great for us to talk a little bit about why there's some non-benign features of referring to generations sure. and using this kind of lens through seeing people in the workforce. Yeah, absolutely. So um, as we sort of discussed before, I mean, these ideas at some level uh, seem really benign. They do. They seem like, well, you know, all we're doing is we're talking about generations, guys. It's not a big deal. But Hmm. as I also suggested, and we talked a little bit about it, this is like a really thinly veiled way of of couching ageism or or like conveying or communicating about ageism uh, that's really socially sanctioned. And so one of the things that we've tried to do in, in thinking about how do we talk about the risks of generational thinking is to, to try to advance the idea of, of what we call generationalism, 
which is an ism like racism or sexism. It's basically like, guys, if we if we if we take this idea and we uh, you know try to apply generational labels to everybody, we're going to start to treat people differently as a result of that. And so, if we think about generational thinking as as an ism, then maybe that'll change the way that people see this sort of. Uh, otherwise socially accepted way of, of talking about age or, or thinking about age, um, making it a little less socially acceptable to do so. But yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of these things where I think that, you know, if you, if you were ranting about, you know, if you wrote a Buzzfeed article about how older people were killing something or how, you know, how there were these massive differences between older and younger people that weren't really well-founded, maybe that would, maybe that would spark some attention from, folks saying, hey, that's a little bit of an ageist sentiment. But if you if you say it's boomers versus millennials, that kind of protects people from 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 that criticism, I think, a little bit. Right. Um, right. And really it's stuff I don't like is negative. Things right. that things I do like is positive. And so let's let's <laughs> just let's just address court a few bullet points. Why should we care about ageism other than it feels nice and fluffy? What are some yeah. concrete reasons we should give a rip? Well, uh, so uh, where do you want me to start? Uh, <laughs> the um, list is so long. Sweet. Well, if you're trying to make a business case, it's illegal to discriminate against uh, uh, workers who are aged 40 and up. Now, younger workers aren't protected by that. So if you're, young, if you're less than the age of 40, you know, you can't really claim age discrimination. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't occur. It just means that that's not a protected class. Uh, on the other side of this, um, if you want to maintain an age-diverse workforce, it, it kind of behooves you to have a climate that uh, is age-inclusive. Um, my own research on kind of age-inclusive uh, climates and age-inclusive HR practices suggests that if you can develop uh, work systems that are age-inclusive, uh, that actually benefits employee well-being regardless of age. And so organizations that have more age-inclusive human resources practices, which is to say that there are human resources practices that are beneficial to members of the workforce of all ages that don't single out younger versus older employees, that tends to lead to uh, higher levels of perceived age inclusivity, right? So everybody gets these benefits, everybody gets these, uh, you know, uh, these affordances regardless of their age, I feel like this is a pretty good place to work. Maybe I want to stay there long term, but also those are the types of things that produce, you know, positive health benefits and well-being benefits for workers uh, across across the work lifespan. And so there's a sort of legal pragmatic case like, yeah, we shouldn't discriminate against people who are over 40 because, you know, we're going to get sued. But also, hey, if we just if we have a better, more age-inclusive work environment, Everyone's going to benefit as a result that has, you know, long term. Uh, and then and there's other research that suggests that there's performance, you know, kind of performance benefits from doing the same thing, um, regardless of work or age. I think, you know, we can think about, uh, you know, other things as well. Like socially, we should strive to have a more inclusive work environment in general. And I think age is sort of a missing component of that. But the other thing we don't really talk about all that much is sort of the intersections among different categories of demographics uh older females older black females sort of those sort of combinations of qualities of people lead to different types of uh, work experiences 
different risks for marginalization and such. So again, being kind of one of these universal experiences, everybody gets older, everybody ages, right? But how is that experience different for, you know, members of the workforce who have, you know, different qualities, men versus women, you know, members of different minorities or, or, or yeah. you know. So I think you've you've already started taking us into some implications here, and I think you just mentioned some great ones for organizations. You know that there is this liability that you can have in terms of age discrimination. You obviously don't want to create some policies or practices that are based upon generations, right? Because we don't even know if they really exist, and we have concluded based upon the research that that doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. And uh, I love your idea of these age climates, right? Having uh, an inclusive climate for people across the spectrum of different ages, that that's a good thing. Um, so if we drop down to the, like the individual level, uh, what do you think are some, maybe some implications for your research and some of these ideas around generations and the lack thereof um, kind of have for individuals? Yeah, so individuals can be thought of, and I guess in a couple different ways. I mean, in terms of, um, you know, let's think about like decision makers. We can talk about different stakeholders within organizations and kind of what these what these ideas have, but I guess, you know, the one, the one level to, to think about is sort of individual kind of decision makers within organizations, maybe people mm-hmm. who are setting policies, um, maybe people who are thinking in terms of, you know, what, how would we tailor an environment to be, you know, age inclusive? Um, and there's a few different things we can talk about. I mean, like at one level, if, if we're going to talk about tailoring organizational processes to be age sensitive, we need to recognize that at some level there are some age-related differences in like physical and cognitive abilities, right? Mm-hmm. But we can tailor work processes to account for that. And so, you know, as as workers get older, their physical capacities on average tend to decline somewhat. Well, let's design work that actually can account for that. And so I think for individuals, what I would recommend is let's not, we got to stop talking about generations here. You know, yeah. we, we need to start talking about what are we going to do? Because here's the reality. The workforce is getting older. Even even in, uh, in, you know, kind of emerging economies, the workforce is getting older across the globe. That's a universal fact. And pension systems are declining. Right. And so everyone is going to need to work longer. Regardless of where you live, there is a pretty it's pretty clear that. There is a, an economic imperative to extend working lives beyond the traditional 65, you know, average retirement age. Right. Uh, if we're going to make this thing work long term. And so we need to develop systems that let that happen. And so the way to do that is is multiply determined. Right. But I mean, like at one level, we need to reduce this sort of age discrimination component, which can drive people out of the workplace. Um, yeah. We need to build systems that allow for for us to, uh, you know, take advantage of all of the opportunities that come with having an older workforce. Knowledge, retaining that knowledge long term. If someone's been with the company for 30 years, they've seen every different way that you've tried to solve that problem. But if they retire because they're feeling pushed out because they've been told that they're a boomer and we're trying to recruit millennials, that talent leaves, that knowledge leaves the organization. What are we going to do right. with that? So that kind of stuff. I mean, that's the that's the advice I would give. Stop thinking in terms of individual. Uh, stop thinking in terms of uh, of generations, and start thinking in terms of how do we leverage what we know about all the benefits of a, of an aging workforce 
uh, and tailor specifically to, you know, changes that we know from lifespan development, changes in sort of like the, you know, the fluid cognitive capacities and changes in physical capacities. How do we tailor work to that, um, you know, to be able to, to take advantage of the fact that, you know, older workers want to work longer and they need to, and we all need to. And so that's, that's an inevitability for everyone coming down the pike for sure. Yeah. Right. So right. for the, the new ideas about the 1%, the newer ideas, right? Let's go get, there's a resource conflict, right? Between the younger generation and the older generation, this idea of, well, we're in this hot mess in our country right now because of what you guys laid down, you jack wagons. Yet, if we know anything, you guys would have, knowing what they knew, you're the same. <laughs> there wasn't enough evolutionary time span for you to have different cognitive functionings between the boomers to the millennials to the Generation Z, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's it's like the land of the dark elves. Did you want it to be like, kill or be killed? You know, it's like, okay, <laughs> you're old. Now go starve to death. You just couldn't hack it. Yeah. Or individuals. I met a venture, you know, during the early days of Zuckerberg, all these venture capitalists. Well, we need a young entrepreneur that wears a hoodie. Have you seen any of those around? Because young entrepreneurs with hoodies do amazing things. And arguably, there's all these business models that could come out of Silicon Valley and other places from older, more in-depth industry knowledge. But we miss that. Because sure. of our bias at at the individual level, right? Sure. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, it's 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 definitely a challenge. Like I said, it's sort of a natural <laughs> process, and you know, we love classification. People love reducing complicated information into buckets. You know, uh, it's 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 pretty natural, and so overcoming that is a challenge for sure. Um, yeah. It doesn't help that it's so you know, supported, that there's so much media attention around generational differences and that there's so much, you know, like it doesn't help that we're teaching MBAs that these things exist and that they're going out there and doing stuff with it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that's. Yeah, yeah we have all these organizations that. screaming about discrimination <laughs> right? on a whole thing and they've got it, you know, they're getting way better when it comes to race and stuff, but they, it's not a speck. There's a plank in their own eye on discrimination that that's, it doesn't even take hardly anything mm -hmm. for us to pull back the veil here yeah. to start to see this stuff. Right. So, well, and one thing you mentioned earlier, Court, that I thought was really good was, you know, a lot of these things that we talk about or that people say, oh, millennials want flexibility or mm -hmm. autonomy, all these types of things that we know, right, um, that pretty much everybody wants. And, and you know, I, I think a good point here, maybe an implication for uh, leaders out there is that, hey, focus on those things that we know work for mm -hmm. a lot of people most of their lives. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people do like to have some variety and yeah. autonomy and significance in their work and so forth. Um, so those things, you know, no, no person out there is is going to respond negatively to a leader who uh, values their contributions and cares about their well-being. Right? Exactly. It's, just, yeah. <laughs> it's good stuff, right? Yeah. There's a lot exactly. of basics out there. Yeah. What no, I heard on the web was, I'm so glad COVID's here. Maybe some of these old people will just die off. And I remember just oh looking gosh. at that and being like, what in the world? This is not, you know, this like this is Sparta, and we're gonna kick our old people down a hole. Yeah. What is what is go what is wrong here? Yeah. Sometime in like mid March, I started like going through the headlines daily on this stuff and kind of focusing on how how is how is COVID being framed 
at work in terms of 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 age and work and so we actually did a little bit of a kind of a it's it's rather cursory but we have a paper where we kind of went through all these headlines and basically what are what are the themes here and it's exactly that i mean we're seeing a lot of this like you know how is this generational and then there's like it's silly stuff like well you know what these millennials have wanted flexibility the whole time and now they get to work from home (laughs) so that's going to benefit them and it's like well no it's going to benefit everybody uh this isn't this has nothing to do with the preference that people brought you know and that preference doesn't even exist but there's a there's been a ton of like you know speculation about the the generational consequences of covid for work um and it's uh let me, let me, it's a pandemic. By definition, it affects everyone. That's yeah, right. But That's the actuarials right. say that if you're over <laughs> a certain age, you are a much larger chance of dying. Yeah. And that's just that's, just like immaculate degeneration. Like as you get older, your eyes for a lot of people well, will start to go back. Yeah. So mill- millennials are killing the knee replacement industry, too. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Good. All right. So we're talking about leaders here. And one of the things, all this stuff, we've said it, it's shortcutted thinking. And so if you're at the top of the organization looking down, you don't want leaders with shortcutted thinking, right? Yeah. That's, it's like we said before, it's stinking thinking. So if they're just applying some easy paint by the numbers management and leadership style, that's not the kind of leader you want in your organization. If you got that kind of leader in your organization, which most of you do, right? You're going to have to do some teaching and training on this. You can't just take the how to manage millennials in three easy steps. This is about sensing, a sensing function of saying, who is this person? They're not just a cohort. My team is a cohort of tools that I use to go from director to VP. No. That's the wrong answer. That's going to be bad for your organization and how, you know, things like perceived organizational support because your team can smell that a mile away. So if you're at the top, you need to make sure your leader's below. If you are a leader and don't want to get fired as people start to wake up to these realities, you need to treat everybody as an individual and say, rather than, oh, well, you're a millennial, so surely you want a beer keg and a foosball table, right? You know, why don't you just ask them what they need? Hey, no, man, Chris, am I Chris, you- Chris, 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 huh? everybody wants a beer keg. And a- <laughs> <laughs> I, I, that's, that's just I don't know, the truth. I don't know if so. you guys can see my beer keg is back there in the, in the background. I can there. see yeah. it. Yes. <laughs> hey, what, what's, what's on tap court? It's uh, actually, I think it's full of LaCroix right now. Nice. <laughs> Wait, they sell sparkling water by the keg? Yes. You know, that's next. That's but awesome. Guys, this hey. is the thing. You've got to pay attention and start asking your people what they need. You need to develop programs. Don't just buy them off the shelf from some guy that looks good in, or gal that looks good in a suit. Right? Yet, gal. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always really well worried about people that have uh, have an agenda and also stand to lose if that agenda falls apart. Right. And so, like this, this is an area where there's a ton of that. You know, there's gurus that you can hire to come into your organization and fix all of your generations problems or, you know, maybe just give a one hour seminar about what members of different generations want. And like, I think that it's interesting. I mean, these, these ideas, we, we, we've seen these ideas. We've talked a little bit about these ideas. They, these individuals would stand to lose a lot if 
if more people really understood what the actual science was behind this stuff. Uh, and I think we're starting to see a change. I mean, the National Academies report should be influential, I would hope. Um, earlier, there was a, a report by the Center for Evidence-Based Management that reached basically the same conclusion. And yeah. so uh, we, we, I have a few papers where we look at different literatures and, and come to similar conclusions. Um, so I'm hoping that there is a bit of a, a, a mass of, uh, of new kind of ideas behind this that sort of help to, to translate what the actual science is here. But I mean, to the extent that people like this stuff and to the extent that people are selling these ideas, I think people will still buy them. And so mm. we got to focus a little bit like one one area that I think is really interesting is like, let's let's focus on the gurus. You know, let's focus on what people do when they're trying to sell a but the evidence for a doesn't exist. It's snake oil. Right. To some extent. It's, right. Totally. It's uh, that's interesting. And then I want to know why people are buying it. Yeah. 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 We all want to figure that one out for <laughs> sure. For sure. Um, you know, Cord, this has just been a fantastic conversation talking about generations and generational differences and the lack thereof and debunking some of these myths. Uh, you know, today on the podcast, we talked about this whole idea of generations and uh, some myths. We talked about some implications for people, leaders and organizations. Um, anything else that you'd like to leave uh, our listeners with there, Court? Um, tell our listeners where they can find out more about you, those types of things. Yeah, sure. So I have a website. It's uh, pretty easy. It's courtrudolph.com. I post a lot of my papers there um, when I uh, when I remember to update it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I also have links on there to uh, social media. I'm on Twitter at Court Rudolph. Um, I tweet a lot about generations and uh, research in this space in uh, kind of OBHR management and IO psychology. Awesome. Awesome. And I'm sure it's a challenge keeping your website updated because you publish a new paper about every other day. So, um, <laughs> you know, it's a lot of work. But I just wanted to say on behalf of Chris and myself, just Court, it has been an absolute pr pleasure having you as a guest on the Indigo podcast. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Indigo podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com, where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.